You have anything more to say? I've never retired something that was born before. What's the difference? To be born is to have a soul, I guess. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait You Haven't Seen, and it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 93. Our movie this week was Blade Runner 2049, and here to talk with me about it because I had not seen it before, J.F. DeBow. How you doing? I'm I'm doing great. Wow, 90-something episodes. That's a long run. Yeah, I... Uh... And and I've done it in 94 weeks, too. I haven't taken any time off because I'm crazy like that. Best 94 movies that you had, either you or a, a guest had not seen before. So, I mean, yeah. assuming and I, it even split, that's a lot of new movies. Uh, yeah, it's been, I would say, the majority of movies I have seen before. But um, when people have brought me stuff that I haven't seen, I'm blown away by it and this week isn't really any exception to that rule because I love the original Blade Runner. It was... Uh, See, I'm okay with the original Blade Runner, <laughs> but well, I adore this one. So the original Blade... Hang on just a moment. Hey! So I'll be taking over the show from now on, and we'll be talking about Blade Runner 2049 anyways because I am pumped to chat about this movie. Oh, All he's right. back. Never mind. Somebody's getting into the garbage. Play down. <laughs> I swear it's not me. Um, okay, so I'm I, I, later. I love the original Blade Runner. It was a movie that I saw pretty young, um, probably younger than I should have been to see that particular movie, but it had a, a profound effect on me. Partly it was, oh, it's Harrison Ford, and I knew him from Indiana Jones and Star Wars, so I loved that aspect of it. But the movie itself just had this really cool... And as I got older and I saw it more and I saw the different cuts and all of that that Ridley Scott did, I became enamored with this idea of that was what the future looked like. And it really... I mean, it helped kind of shape a lot of what today is looked at as cyberpunk. It was one of mm, those okay. things that was you know hugely influential in that. This movie came out a few... What, three years ago? 2017. Uh, two, two, 2017, yeah. Yeah. And... I wanted to see it, but it was at a period of time where I wasn't able to get out to movies very often and it slipped by and then I just hadn't watched it. And it was always that, it was that movie that it was, yes, I need to watch that. And then I'd forget about it for three months and then somebody would mention it and I'm like, oh, I need to watch that. And I'd see it on Netflix or, or whatever. And, and then I would forget about it again. But, um, you know, I'm glad that I finally got a chance to see it because it is fantastic. I mean, straight out the gate, it's a great movie. It is. It's it's a freaking masterpiece in every way, shape, or form. I mean, there's there's a couple of things here and there that I would like. You can nitpick it if you really want to get into it. Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, like it's it's a movie that's so layered and thematically rich that even if you can find little flaws here and there, they pale compared to the actual weight of the movie itself. Yeah, I mean, sure, I could I could sit and nitpick all sorts of stuff in just about any movie perfect or not but oh yeah no but the the thing with a movie like this is 
when you're nitpicking stuff, you're, you're, you have to search for it. I mean, something as simple. There's a, there's a moment in this that did confuse me when, um, and we're going to probably jump around a lot in terms of where in the movie, but there's a yeah, moment. I have, I have a feeling that if your audience hasn't seen this, at least I'm going to confuse them a lot, but. <laughs> oh, I'm sure I will maybe, too. We're, maybe you can guide them along. We're going to be spoiling it too. So if you haven't seen it and you really care that much, um, go watch the movie and then, then come back. But uh, there's, a, there's a moment where Kay, played by Ryan Gosling, is mm-hmm. looking over genetic markers and DNA records. Mm-hmm. And he stops and he says, well, wait, these two people this have the exact same DNA. That's not possible. Now, do twins not like identical twins not exist in this universe? Or is it because it was a boy and a girl that he's saying that? I f- I think it might have been a boy and girl situation because of the whole like XY chromosome matchup. I got because I mean, he he's he is looking like at full genomes there. Yeah. So I feel like that would come up. So yeah, I suppose, but I, that one confused me a little bit. And then there, you know, there are little again little nitpicks, but but overall, this movie is so well done, and it I really feel like Blade Runner is a tough one to do a sequel to for two reasons. One, because of how influential it was in like the style of storytelling and, and taking, taking that from the 50s, 60s, and 70s sci-fi and kind of bridging the gap into sort of more modern sci-fi writing. But also, there were four different versions of that movie that were released over the years. There's four different cuts to it, and three of the four are pretty similar, but, you know. I just feel like that's a tough one to, well, we're going to make a sequel to this. And it was already four versions of it. So I feel that the answer that Villeneuve went with, um, was to not tell like, what is the continuation of this existing story? As in, he chose to tell what is the story that comes after this one? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's less about, this is like the second part of a trilogy as, as a lot, a lot of these sequels tend to try to be like, they try to franchise out, Instead, his optic was, here's a second story that follows the first one, but it's its own thing. Like, it's, it's got its own theme, or it expands upon the, uh, the, the previous theme, but it doesn't try to either retell the story or just... It doesn't try to explain the first story either. Like, you talk about the different versions of the original Blade Runner, and it feels like this, ver- this Blade Runner 2049 doesn't try to pick which one it's a sequel to that's a good point yeah and i actually really like the fact that it doesn't try to explain events from the first movie that that coincide with this or or anything like that like one of the things i loved about uh the non-theatrical editions of the first blade runner was getting rid of the film noir style voiceover and leaving a lot of the interpretation up to the to the person watching it and letting letting and, stuff sit on its own merit and then you interpret it in your own way. Yeah, and, and, and this movie is this is not a movie for if if you're thinking of having a light watch and having it in the background, this is not a movie that takes you by the hand and explains every little detail. Nope. It it doesn't it does not dumb itself down for anyone. And I absolutely adore that. Like I think one one of the problems I'm having with movies, like I watch a lot less movies these days than I used to, and I feel it's because a lot of movies have become 
maybe they haven't become maybe it's because i write more and hence i'm i've become hyper conscious of, of storytelling structure that when i watch a movie i it, it's hard for me to feel engaged because i feel like large portions of the movie is just them explaining say we do this now let us take five minutes to explain why we did this in as you know more it's detailed as detailed the way as possible to make sure that every single person in the audience that even people who are not paying attention still get it and during those portions i just get bored yeah and that is partly filmmaking like filmmaking 101 is assume your audience doesn't know anything and you have to show them and tell them everything i remember uh the quote was that i remember the most was in the commentary track for the movie dogma mm-hmm. kevin smith is talking about there's a shot where character goes into a house and he looks up at the air conditioning vent and so because it was just a shot of the air conditioning vent um he had to put like little tassel little ribbons on there that would move to show that there's air moving because yeah. you have to assume because, your yeah. audience doesn't know what that is so yeah there's definitely some of that and i do see that uh in films quite a bit this and it was funny because there's a a trivia piece talking about this movie didn't really do very good at the box office um, compared to its budget. It was a $150 million budget. It made $250 million worldwide, but only $92 million in the U.S., which is surprising. But, um, and this is cute that U.S. is stupid argument, which I'm, I'm never in agreement with, but go on. No, no, no. What, it was, what was great, though, was, uh, was the director, Villeneuve, and uh, Ridley Scott both said, well, Part of the problem is that we made a movie that's two hours and 45 minutes long. And even Villeneuve was like, yeah, I made the most expensive art house film uh, probably ever. And it's definitely not going to have a wide appeal. And that's true. Like it is, it is not a theater going popcorn movie at all. This is a, you're, you're, you're going to get, if you get invested in the story, you're going to really enjoy what they're doing and you're going to pay a lot of attention to it. But if you just want something you want to throw on in the background and have, uh, or shut your brain off and enjoy, this isn't that movie. It's going to grab you. Visually from a visual standpoint, it's a movie that begs to be on the large screen. Yes. And the soundtrack and sound effects demand to be in like hi-fi, THX, whatever Dolby surround things that they have in theaters now. Like it's it's a movie that definitely takes advantage of everything a theater has to offer, but also like you say, it's like two two hours and forty five minutes. And if you decide to go into the washroom in the middle of it, <laughs> you're gonna miss some important thematic thread thread. So Yeah, and yeah. Uh, like there's storytelling that goes on in this that I love because there's a twist and it's one of these, it's one of these movies that gives you all the breadcrumbs that you need to figure out the story and the twist that's coming, but it's done in such a deft way and in such a, such a well paced way. If it's, it's hard to say, it's hard for me to say that a two hour and 45 minute movie is paced well, but it really is. I mean, it's it's long and it feels long for people but... of our age i feel like i'm i'm going <laughs> okay that's sorry true. my boomer my boomer's going to show a bit but <laughs> i mean this this is a movie that has long tracking shots of cgi uh, solar farms it's it's a movie that is going to take advantage of long pauses in dialogue just to 
or have a dialogue between two characters where one character never says a word and only talks with facial expressions. Like it does things that you won't see in an Avengers movie because no. people will get bored and leave. Yeah, this is it's not a mass appeal movie, but if you like Blade Runner, you'll like this movie. Because that's one of the things I love about the first Blade Runner is it took its time. It would let shots soak in. It would let you take in what was going on. This movie does that, but like at another level. Um, now, I want to talk about cast because Ryan Gosling plays K or Joe. He kind of goes by mm -hmm. both. Uh, our main character. And I am not the biggest Ryan Gosling fan. And it's not a I don't like romantic comedies or I don't like that. I've just never been super taken with him as an actor. Um, there was a movie he did a few years ago called Drive. Um, I don't know if you saw that or not, but it was well praised. Uh, I didn't love it. He plays a character who goes by the name Driver. He's never given a name throughout the whole movie, um, but he's very stoic in that as well. There, it felt really out of place because it was taking place in kind of a real world or hyper hyper-realized version of our world, this it fit. And I think part of it, the reason his stoicism fit so well was they, they established right away he's a replicant. And I liked him in this. I thought he was really good. He had to do a ton of acting with just his face and, and specifically his eyes and not a lot of, not a lot of dialogue. No, he... he, he this movie will make me forgive a lot of past and future acting errors that <laughs> Goslin might make. And I mean, let, let's talk about, let's just take a minute, like, because th this is one of the one and only time that I feel that the movie is heavy handed in something is in, in laying out that replicants are not well liked. The sort of racism towards replicant is made obvious and almost too obvious during the scenes where where k goes back to the lapd and goes goes back to his apartment yeah and that's, however, the, that's the only time that's the only time that you go yeah maybe they're maybe they're laying this one on thick a bit maybe but i kind of saw that as twofold number one that was talked about in blade runner but it wasn't seen as much you didn't because there weren't a ton of replicants running around, you didn't see that disdain for them, but they weren't looked at very highly. Um, but the other part of it was they, they have to establish that. And I think had, had this come out, uh, you know, within a couple of years of the first Blade Runner, and it was more of kind of your standard sequel type of deal where it's like, you know, two to five years later, they make this. Um, you may not need to go as heavy handed with that, but you've got a 35 year gap. So they have to try to establish that in their world. So that, that actually didn't bother me a whole lot. It, it um, doesn't bother me. It's just that compared to some of the other explanations that we see later in the movie that are laid in so much more subtly, mm -hmm. I felt that this one stands out and maybe, okay, it's me. It's like the 50th time I've seen this movie. And it's only <laughs> now that I'm sort of noticing it, but compared to how they've handled similar explanation and themes this is the only one that i feel that they're really driving it like they're they're shoving it down our throat very heavy and Fair i'm enough. fine with it, it it's still it, it doesn't take away it's still a lighter touch than a lot of other movies that try to do the same thing yeah but compare like within the ensemble work that's the one element that i feel like yeah, all right 
Yeah, and they they did a lot of things to make K seem um, like kind of a foot in both worlds, where because they establish right away he's a replicant, but then there's certain actions he takes that don't feel like they're what a replicant would do, at least in my opinion. But but very subtly, um, and then mm-hmm. but then he'll have something like Joy, his uh, you know his holographic girlfriend, and him not liking real girls, which. So I've wa- I watched it twice. I watched it last night as just a, I'm going to sit back on the couch. I'm going to take this movie in my first, you know, first viewing ever. And mm-hmm. that moment when, when he's sitting in that little food court eating and the girls come up to him and uh, the one girl, Mariette, starts talking to him and, and says the line, you don't like real girls. I took that as not liking humans as opposed to replicants. And then the second time I watched it earlier today, it felt more like she was commenting on his having a joy. Um, oh, program. absolutely! Because so, she she hears the she hears she like hears the, the booting up noise, yeah. which which is the one mystery. Like, there's a lot of little things like Nabokov and like White Fountain. Like, there's there's a lot of little thematic poetic things. I don't. No, I and I've looked it up. I need to look it up again. See someone, someone cracked it. Why they're using Peter and the Wolf as <laughs> the boot up, boot down sound for joy? Yeah, I'm because not sure. That, I'm. There's no way that's an accident, of course, because nothing freaking is in this movie. But I, I still don't know exactly. And and maybe it's a Wallace thing. Maybe it's to. Maybe it's Wallace's sound, and that's like the sinister aspect of it. Okay. Is what. And Joy was another character that was really interesting to me because I'm watching the movie and she's she's very much like, uh, you know, the the domesticated kind of housewife character um, with him. She, she's somewhere she's somewhere between a, a housewife and a dog in how she's initially presented. Yes. Like the way she's trying to look for what. K wants to do how to please him is so dog like. Like, mm-hmm. what do you want to play with ball? Do you want to play fetch? Do you want to go for a walk? Do you want to watch movies? Like, she's trying so many things until like he hits like on 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 giving her this gift, which is very bizarre. But the way she's developed later, like it it adds a layer to the entire story. And I'm sure we'll get into it. But when it talks about like the the sort of quote unquote racism from humans Mm -hmm. to replicants but then you see an example of that from replicants to holograms and hmm, yeah that's interesting it was and then so you've got this whole thing and then they start to layer on stuff with her and she starts to take on like she gets the the little emitter um deal Mm -hmm. so she can leave the apartment and now there's this whole scene where she goes out on the rooftop in the rain and i thought it was really interesting how like the rain started to interact I don't know exactly how that, that was something in programming or what, but and from what in, I understand is like the rain itself goes through her, but the moment the emitter picks up that she's being rained down, it creates holographic rain on her. Okay, all right. Well, that so it's basically an extremely responsive program. That makes sense. Um, and and she grows throughout kind of the movie, and you get more and more a sense that she you get the sense that she really cares for Kay. And then after she is unceremoniously stomped out by one of the other replicants, 
we get the advertising version of Joy who talks to Kay. And that threw me at first because it's when I realized, oh, okay, so some of the things that she's been saying are kind of baked into the program, the whole what a day or calling it going like latching onto the name Joe and and all that. Plus the the visual of that where she's got pink skin and black eyes and it's not Anna Diarmas's voice was was weird. There there was there was a lot of visual things that were both well, the, the, intriguing the question, and like, confusing. But it was that question of like, like first movie. Very much like the first movie, like you get the impression that they're they're leaving us with some questions, and mm-hmm. one of the main questions because I like my one of my favorite storylines is the the inclusion of Joy's storyline because of how it affects our interpretation of the relationship. Basically, it creates you originally have the relationship between these two sort of species of people, replicants and humans, but now you have another created creature, which are the holograms, and what their role in society is. And the, it creates this question of, did Joy expand beyond the original programming? What yes. you see in that, like the, the shallow, empty version that you see in that, in, in that advertisement, it contrasts with how Joy, like her last action, and that freaking broke me when I saw the oh, movie in theater. Rough. When, when she gets cracked, like when the emitter gets destroyed and she gets wiped out by, by love, like, her reaction, her initial reaction isn't like self-preservation or anything like that. She just immediately wants to like let Joe know, let Kay know like that she loves him. Yep. Like, so the question, is that programming? Is it because she evolved beyond the original programming? Like, uh. yeah, that's the, that's the tricky one because you have the added layer of, she is a Wallace corporation program. And that was how, love was tracking K earlier in the movie was through the emitters mm-hmm. antenna. And the, again, that was another one where as I'm watching it the second time and I'm trying to like, I didn't catch when he broke the antenna in the emitter as they were leaving the apartment for whatever reason, it, I, my brain just didn't latch on to the fact that, Oh, that's how she was tracking him. But then, and, and remember it's joy who tells him to do all these things. She's mm-hmm. the one trying to protect him from Wallace corporation. Yeah. It's very, very interesting, like what her role is, because it does like at the beginning, it feels like she's like this dog like companion. But the way she reacts to rain is not to make Kay happy. No, like the way reacting to that independence is a very selfish enjoyment for her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So she does have an individual drive. She does seem to be developing like not necessarily an emergent like independence but she's not limited to just being this this subservient program either it's it's very bizarre but then you have um mariette's reaction saying like i've been inside of you and there's not as much as you think that was that was rough like that was harsh um it is it's super rough and it's the kind of thing like this this whole your species is less than mine is exactly how humans treat replicants yep and it, it it makes you really I think it's it's in there to make you think like, all right, well how we treat others, like is it like it's is 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 the playing field just like say, I don't know, green versus yellow, or is there like more complex complexity to it? Yeah, yep, exactly. Um and before I forget about it, I have to touch on there's the scene where Mariette is brought to the apartment by Joy to allow Joy to give Kay some 
I guess physical pleasure will be the way we'll, mm. we'll phrase that. And that was another one of those moments where it was visually both stunning, but so weird to watch. And like, I don't, I don't know how to put it. And I think it's because the way it was done where they're melding the two performances together, where joy is standing over top of Mariette. So you're getting parts of both of them kind of shining, shining through. It was just so like almost uncanny Valley. Like my brain was like, I don't know what I'm seeing here and I can't tell if I like it or if I'm, uh, horrified like, by it. Yeah, exactly. If I were in this situation, how like how is Kay enjoying this? This is just very, <laughs> very strange. But I think it's one of those things that I like about this interpretation. And and Blade mm -hmm. Runner, the original, had a bit of the same flavoring to it. Is the idea that the the future is not simple. The future is gonna be weird. There's a lot of things that we do right now these days that would be upsetting and off-putting to people from like say 20, 40, 50, 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. So yes. I like the idea that the version of the future that Blade Runner portrayed and that Blade Runner 2049 pushed even further is is something exactly like that it's something that to us just feels strange but is at the same time pretty much the logical conclusion of where things are moving forward yeah i mean the they did it on purpose to put like sort of a technological reset with like a blackout where a lot of data was erased mm -hmm. so that it explains also some of the weird technology choices that they're doing for the set pieces but at the same time, like if you have a holographic girlfriend and you want to do more with her, yeah, getting a disposable workforce replicant woman yeah. to step in is, I mean, that's if you're putting all the pieces together, that is the next logical step, but it is off putting. It is. And, and Faye in the chat mentions that it, you know, it's meant to be uneasy. And that's true. It was certainly meant to, to, you know create that reaction and it worked but it was also like at the same time just the imagery the way that it was portrayed the way that it was shot the the visuals of it were fascinating so it was it was just really cool and i had to i had to mention that before i forgot about it because it, it's interesting that villeneuve manages to have a couple of scenes where you have either nudity or sex and neither of them are very sexy <laughs> no none of this is titillating like you it's always like you say, like the, the naked, joy, pink, blue hair, black eyes, ginormous, just yeah. making weird moaning noises and trying to flirt with a potential customer. None of that is interesting. None of that is is titillating. It's all like, oh, this is just weird. I don't yeah, like this. This makes me feel that's weird. 2049's version of a pop up for porn sites. <laughs> they, yeah, it really is. Oh wow. So okay. Well, we have something to look forward to, I guess, or not. Do um, but do we? But do we? That's a good point. Um, so yeah, so we talked about Ryan Gosling. I I liked him. I thought he was good. Uh, Anna Diarmas I thought was fantastic. Um, I just covered Knives Out a few weeks ago uh, with Amy Frost, and she was fantastic in that. Oh wait, she's in that? Okay, I need to watch <laughs> Knives Out. I haven't watched Knives Out. yet. Oh, you I'm need to watch me. Knives Out. I am a very busy man. I understand. There's I understand, but like, you, you, my workplace gave me a whole bag of Lindt chocolate balls. I need to get through that, and this is going to take me like some time. Well, the next time you're getting ready to watch Blade Runner 2049, <laughs> since you said you watched it like 50 times, skip it and watch <laughs> Knives Out once. Yeah, and I'm not going to do that. You could almost watch <laughs> Knives Out twice 
in the amount of time it would take you to watch this movie <laughs> one more time. You can, there's a lot you can do in 2049's <laughs> runtime. Like but dishes. she, oh yeah, she is fantastic though in this. She she does a great job of bringing those different aspects to life of joy that we've been talking about. Whether it's the, you know, the the kind of more uh, pet dog type thing where she's just she just wants to please him. There's the scene where. Um, she's trying really hard to get him to take the name Joe and mm-hmm. really feeding that whole idea that he, that is another he is, uncomfortable scene. Like seeing Kay snap at her is, mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I mean, I hate to make the comparison, but it's like seeing a main character snap at his dog. Like you get like, and, and I hate to relegate that character to sort of that role, but it is a bit how she's established. But man, it's just like you get you get attached to Joy because there's a certain innocence to her too. There is, there is, and you see on more than one occasion where her program gets shut off because the emitter gets turned off, and she's in mm-hmm. mid sentence when it happens, and you can see the fear in her face. Well, the first time that happens, she gets she gets frozen in place mid kiss. Yep. Yeah. By an incoming message. She is overridden by a freaking voicemail. It is so dehumanizing. Yeah. Yeah. For something and... that is ostensibly p- probably sentient. Mm-hmm. Ouch. It is rough. Like, this is a movie that is a, a dance of really rough scenes, especially if you take the time to analyze them. I mean, some are obviously rougher, like when um, when Wallace analyzes his new his new model of, oh. of uh, replicants. Mm. Oh, that's a rough one. Uh, that's a it's, rough one on a lot of different levels too. Like it's rough just watching it because the way rough. it's the way it's framed and the way it's shot. And then if the more you think about it, the the more disturbing it becomes. It's disturbing because he paints a very ugly p- picture of humankind. Yeah. But a very accurate one. Um, also true. And he does it in this very weird, very strange, extremely mega- megalomaniacal um, attitude. Like he clearly paints himself as God in this whole situation. Yeah. Yeah. He's so there's another one. So I mentioned that I'm not the biggest fan of Ryan Gosling, but I thought he was good in this. I'm also not the mm-hmm. biggest Jared Leto fan. Um, and he was. He was fine. Uh, I didn't love him, but I also didn't didn't have my normal uh, levels of like, yes, Jared Leto, I can avoid this type of thing. Okay, I I think you're not supposed to love Neander Wallace, so that's normal. But I think he did an amazing job acting. But oh, here's the well, thing. Yeah. Denis Villeneuve gets incredible performances out of his actors. And I think for part of it, and I'm, I'm going to use the Dave Bautista example for this. I think it's because he does not underplay their potential. I It's been a very long time since I've seen a, a Harrison Ford movie and thought, man, that's some good acting, Harrison. Like, Harrison's been phoning it in for a good, solid 20 years. In this movie, he nails it. Like, he has, like, the the example I was given earlier of a dialogue where only only one person usually uses words is when, when Wallace is talking to him and all you see out of Ford are fa- facial re- reactions. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's brilliant. But the, what I'm going to get to, like, Dave Batista is mostly known for playing Drax the Destroyer. Yeah. And here's the thing. 
where James Gunn took Dave Bautista, ex-wrestler, aspiring actor, well, definitely actor, and decided, I am going to make an joke out of him for a solid four movies. Well, two movies, and then give him to the Avengers people so that they can make a joke of him for another two movies. Villeneuve gave him Sapper Morton and made him amazing. He really did. And his, it shows... his. It's, it's like nothing in Guardians of the Galaxy is going to make me say, oh, yeah, that's not a wrestler. That's an actor. No. But in 2049, every scene with Sapper Morton, you go, oof. That's we know acting. what it is, is it, it shows his ability as an actor. And what it kind of reminded me of was when Dwayne Johnson was first getting into Hollywood and first acting, you know, mm. the first major thing he did was... Uh, the mummy returns and the, the cameo he had as the scorpion King, which I don't really count yeah, that go the go flex topless in front of a camera. Rolls. Yeah. Um, but he did, he did that. And then he did, uh, he did a movie called the rundown um, directed by Peter Berg. That was uh, like an action comedy with Sean William Scott. So it was the rock and Stifler in Brazil. Um, and it's, it's hilarious. It's a great fun action movie. But it's it's very jokey. It's very you know wink and nod type of thing. There's a scene in Walking Tall that he did. I think like a year later. That is a courtroom scene, and it shows that early in his career, I was like, oh, this guy can act. He's actually going to have a career that can keep going. He doesn't just have to do the action stuff that's going to make him a ton of money. I had that same feeling watching Dave Batista in this because you're right. They it's James Gunn. It's, it's, it's night and day. Yeah, James Gunn leaned into the fact that Dave Batista is funny and he's got good comedic timing. So they leaned yeah, into that I'm, for I'm not, Drax. And this, I'm they not taking leaned... anything away from mm-hmm. from Guardians of the Galaxy. Like Guardians oh, yeah. of the Galaxy One is mm, superb, super fun. The Guardians of the Galaxy Two, eh, written drunk clearly, but <laughs> like, so I'm I'm not saying that he's misusing it, but I mean, he's not pulling much of the acting out of Dave Batista. Right. No, and this, did. He, Batista's got one scene in this movie and it's phenomenal. And I, I have a cool it's little phenomenal. story about this too. So I, maybe you knew this, but probably not. I'm ignorant. According to the documentary dangerous days, which was the making of blade runner came out in like Oh seven. And I remember watching this. Um, and I had forgotten about this story, but Ridley Scott had a very different opening for the original Blade Runner, and it was going to be a scene showing Deckard as an actual Blade Runner. He ended up cutting it and going with the whole introduction at the noodle truck mm-hmm. because it felt like it fit the movie better. That scene was basically repurposed into the opening to this movie. So originally that was oh, going to be a scene with cool. Deckard and Harrison Ford and all that, and so they reused it. That might be, and it's hard for me to say this, but like... It might be my favorite scene in this movie from a filmmaking standpoint because you've got it's a it's a great performance by Dave Batista. It's a very good performance by Ryan Gosling. It's got a lot of tension in it. And then on top of that, the sound design in that scene is amazing. Like they're in this little house and I got this sense that Dave Batista that Sapper Morton weighs like eight hundred pounds with the way he moves mm-hmm. around and the sound of his footfalls as he would move and the sound the, the use the use of the silence and the boiling water in the yes. background and and the use of dialogue like Batista taking a moment mid sentence to just take his glasses and put them on turn around it's, everything about 
like everything from his mannerism to his the, the delivery of his dialogue like i you watch Guardians of the Galaxy and you don't get the impression that this actor is capable of that and i feel it is First of all, it is an amazing credit to Dave Bautista that he is capable of that, and I feel that they should stop having him do like freaking comedies, unless that's what he likes to do. Like, admittedly, comedies are probably a lot more fun to to play in than than you know, high concept sci fi drama. But man, like, shove some other scripts in front of him too, because he is capable. Yeah, he really and is. I, I, I feel like Villeneuve is doing that out of every single one of his actors. Like Jared Leto, like I know a lot of people don't necessarily like him as an actor. I was introduced to Jared Lee Leto mostly in Blade Runner 249. So I have like I started he's good. Yeah. <laughs> so I've, and I've barely ever seen him suck. And I don't I don't dislike Leto's ability. His acting ability is great, but he's one of those method actors that like mm-hmm. goes beyond being a method actor. So, I read I read some annoying things he did uh, to uh, while yeah. doing the Joker thing. The the Joker and uh, I remember him in as far back as Fight Club and he was in that. I didn't really like him there. It's weird though that I say this and then I'm like, oh yeah, but then I remember seeing Panic Room and I loved him in that movie and he is about as annoying as possible. He's playing a character. He's got cornrows. Well, he's it, it. It just worked. But oh my god. <laughs> He uh, in this he doesn't have a lot of scenes, like a ton of screen time. I should say he's got a few scenes, but he's not. It's not like he's you know constantly in the movie. In fact, he and Ryan Gosling never don't even have a scene together. You're two the, kind of leads. The main villain and the main the main villain and main hero never cross paths in yeah. this movie. And um, the fact that most people probably don't even. I'm, I'm glad you noticed it. I mean, that's that's credit to you as a as a film watcher. But a lot of people like. Really, they don't. Oh my yeah. god, they don't. They, they never. Great. Like, I mean, K fights the mini boss, and that's it. We'll yeah. talk about love in a moment because, mm. damn, that character. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, go on. Sorry, but uh, you know, Leto's the kind of guy he put opaque contacts in, so he literally couldn't see to play a blind character. Um, and I, I don't know. It, it's I have this weird weird love-hate relationship with him because I, I respect his ability as an actor to create a character. I just think he is kind of a douche canoe, so it's hard for me to to really get into his roles. Um, I don't know. It, it, but at the same time, it, the guy is good at what he does, and he really brought a lot of that because you mentioned he's not a, he's not a character you're supposed to like, and that's true. And that certainly plays into it. I'm, I'm hundred percent certain that that's playing into kind of the way that I view it because he's really good at it. His, his scenes are memorable. He, he manages to feel, he creates this very interesting space where he is both extremely alien in his mannerism. Like he doesn't feel ex- very human. Like he, he, Whatever you imagine the elite mega rich to like their their ivory tower syndrome to be, he impersonates that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, in a way, he is like the verbal ambassador for humanity in how he he talks about things and how he like talks about his plans. And the funny thing is like the kind of like weird sort of subtle twist of the knife is that in his inhumanity, he does want the same thing the replicant rebels want. 
just in a different way. Yeah, that's true. Um, and there's there's all sorts of great subtext and subtle things going on, like the fact that the Wallace Corporation really flaunts their money in their building, if you notice, because everything is made out of wood and it's all it's like natural sunlight and water and all of this stuff that just just, you know, nobody else has any of that. So it's really flaunting that. Mm-hmm. And I think that plays into it. Uh, the the room that he spends all his time in is crazy. That like, Yeah, with the little... The floating floor going out to the uh, the little platform that he sits on all the time. Like, it's just, there was all these nice little touches to it. And yeah, it, it, I didn't think about the fact, though, you're right. He wants the same thing for the replicants they want. They're just going about it in two different directions. So And, and they want... Like, Wallace wants it because he wants a disposable workforce because he's got this dream for humanity to just absolutely spread across the galaxy. Yeah. And he does, it does feel like he has this kind of bizarre love for replicants while still considering them a little more than objects. Like there's a complexity to him. Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. the replicants themselves, they just want to be free. Like they want to be their own separate independent species yeah um maybe not even independent but they do want that freedom and they see the the, the possibility of reproduction uh and not being fabricated as like an important step in that direction and it's it's weird how having the same goal still puts them at odds because the same goal is not necessarily the same result yes yeah they have a similar goal with different outcomes that they're hoping for and, and so. these are the little subtleties that I said that, that, that when I'm talking about like this movie not doing like not going out of its way to explain every little subtlety, this is what I'm talking about. This <laughs> is the kind of stuff that you pick up after watching it once or twice. Yeah, you know, and they have little things like uh, the idea of a soul. There's the there's the moment where, and I played it at the top of the show where Kay says, you know, I've never retired something Good. that was born before. Um. Mm. And he's like, you know, well, being born means you have a soul. And what I didn't play was the end of that scene as he's leaving the office and his, um, is it Joshi? Joshi? Madam. Uh, Madam, yeah, Madam. Tells him, you know, well, you've done well so far. And he's like, what? Without having a soul. First of all, that line from her is such a dismissive line. And it's so, it's, it's a, just such a harsh thing it's to say. The- it is the perfect line because admittedly like there's there's a whole um sort of of, of pastiche if you will not pastiche it's not the right word but there's this whole kind of uh, of thematic of racial tension mm-hmm. like the fact when when Kay goes to the Wallace office and meets love for the first time and she introduces herself with a name he says oh he named you yeah you must and, be special yeah you must be special and the whole idea, like, there, there, there's this dichotomy between these two. Like, Love was named by Wallace. Kay eventually gets named by Joy and has to decide to accept that name. Mm-hmm. But the idea of them having, like, basically having a serial number, their quote-unquote slave name, and then having another name, it's, like, this is very, like, these are parallels to, like, to, to, to North American slavery, obviously. Mm-hmm. So it's it's it makes it very like first of all it makes Joy's character that much more interesting and weird and we can go into I don't know how much time you've got but I can talk <laughs> about love for a while. 
Yeah. So it, there's this whole aspect of it too. Yeah. And then on top of that, the look on Kay's face when Madam tells him he doesn't have a soul is But that's the thing, she you can see is this is where I'm going was going for. Sorry, I lost my thread. No, it's fine. The, she was going for a compliment and instead it's an insult. Yes, yes, exactly. She like thinks she, she's complimenting him. Yeah. And oh you're 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 doing good for slave labor. Like for, for a subhuman, you're doing great. Yes, exactly. Nice backhanded compliment, and you just see the the look on his face and it without a single line of dialogue, the way Gosling can um portray all that hurt. And then walk out mm-hmm. and go back to doing his job anyway. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's impressive. And it's impressive both from an acting standpoint and from a, a writing and a character standpoint. Absolutely. So. From from the directing standpoint, too. And, I mean, there's no question that Madam cares about him. Mm-hmm. Like, she doesn't see him as an equal. She doesn't see him as human. Like, the, dico- the dichotomy between her humanity and his being replicant is clear but she does care about his well-being. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Like, and they make it very clear. Like in their very first interaction, she immediately says, "Oh, you're hurt." Like her reaction is one of, like, of, of, of sympathy. But she immediately walks it back by saying, "I'm not paying for that. Yeah, like, I'm exactly. not paying for the repairs." Yeah, and it's this weird fine line because she dresses him down for uh, going to whatever that installation was with the the dream doctor. Um, An upgrade center. Upgrade center. That's what it was. But she, you know, Dr. Stelene dressing him down is, for that and turns right mm-hmm. around when he says, well, I found the kid. She doesn't question him at all. Just believes at face but, value what he's saying, because that's what replicants do. Right. They don't lie. And she and then she praises him. But at the same but time, also the way the way she dresses him down is the way a disappointed parent does. Yes. Yes. That. She's not like she doesn't treat him like an employer. She doesn't treat him like even like an owner. She treats him like, why are you putting me in a situation where right. you're like, you know, you're better than this. I know you're better than this. Why are you doing this type of thing? Exactly. And, and then there's the the moment where she's like, look, I can you can I can get you out of the building alive, but you'll have 48 hours before they hunt you down. And right. I'm assuming she means Wallace. Corp, or is she talking about the police she, hunting him down? Because that was the only I was a little confused uh, that's, there. It's one of those vague things where <laughs> the thing is, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter which one it is. It's true. Like they're, they're basically inserting a ticking clock, and that's what that's that's the thing that really matters. But it could be either, or it could be both. So yeah, that's a good point. Um, all right, so love. So love is introduced to us in a meeting before uh, there's the red flag of Rachel's DNA. Mm-hmm. That gets her attention. Um, we find out a she's a replicant. She's got a name, but you. It sounds like you have a lot of thoughts on love. So I'm going to let you kind of have the right, floor so, and and give me a little bit of this. So we we've already talked about the fact that she's introduced. She introduces herself. Like she's clearly the second in command to Wallace, which tells you something about the fact that he chose a replicant to be a second in command. But yeah. then again, like. She, I'm gonna hate to put it that way, but she runs the plantation, quote unquote. Yeah, kind Can of. Can I say that? Like, mm. So, uh. like, it's it's another interesting parallel. Mm-hmm. But also, like, her name is curious. Yes. 
And like, there's there's a lot about it because she is an extremely emotionally complex character. And let me let me get to one of the very first interactions that she has that's very significant. Obviously, she's she seems very eager to help Kay. And we we eventually we learned that is because she wants to use him and the LAPD resources to track down Rachel or mm-hmm. track down Rachel's child. But also, there's a very specific interaction. After to listen to the recording of, of Rachel and Deckard, um, Kay mentions that she she clearly Rachel clearly likes Deckard. Yeah. And Love makes this comment that um, basically how does he she put it she puts it in saying that oh at being the, asked um, personal questions yeah, makes you be, feel being desired asked personal question makes yeah it makes you feel wanted makes you feel desired she immediately follows that statement with a personal question to Kay. yeah yep um yeah it she was the most interesting character to me throughout the movie because she's clearly uh loyal to wallace um, but it's just at the same time, she had like these emotional outbursts, these real short moments of, uh, of breaking, almost breaking protocol, but always in the service of Wallace. So whether it was, um, her moment with Robin Wright with, uh, with Madam is an example of that where she's like, oh, well, and of course you, you didn't question what Kay told you because, you know, we don't lie, we don't lie. and immediately lies. And tells her that she's going to lie right to her face. But that's and, that's probably more of like she like that that hints to the fact that she might be a custom model for that's true. Wallace. Like he might have just made himself a replicant that will lie. But here's the thing: during that very scene, you'll notice that when she's talking about like it becomes very clear she is going to k- kill Wallace. Uh, mm-hmm. No, Wallace. She's going to kill Madam. Yeah. You'll notice that love cries. If you mm-hmm. pay very close attention, there's tears running down her face. And very often, she is reluctant to do some of the things that she does. Yeah, she reminds me a lot of Roy Batty in that way. Batty wasn't, yes. Batty wasn't a, uh, a, just a bad guy that liked to kill people. He, he was more than that. And that's kind of the feeling I got from her. Even right up until the last fight where they're fighting in the water and... She beats him, and it wasn't so much that she wanted to, because she she could have killed Kay, um, but doesn't, and just says, "I'm the best one," and walks away from him. So he like, has so many opportunities to kill Kay, and never does. And because of that initial interaction, it feels like she has an initial I- attraction to Kay. Mm-hmm. He brushes her off. <laughs> yeah, and. But I feel like it, in a way, that sets off like this competitive thing. Like she, she feels slighted by him, not just as a person, but all kind of like almost on a romantic level. It's very like it's very complex the relationship that she has towards Kay, the relationship that Kay has towards her. Super simple. Like yeah. he does not care. She's just this murderous villain. And like, and Kay's already in a "quote unquote" relationship with his hologram, anyways. Right, and and that it's interesting because then she takes she kills Joy, and um, she takes a lot of pleasure in it, and she like, does, and that really even has cements, a one liner. Yeah, and it, it cements what Kay thinks of her at that point. Like he's done with her. 
but mm-hmm. yeah, Love was a was an interesting character. Now I kind of I want to watch it. I, I need to give a little bit of breathing time before I watch it again and kind of let things roll around in my head. But I'm definitely going to watch this again. I, I want to watch it uh, to pay attention to her a little bit more in some of the the other scenes that she's in because you see not only the the loyalty she has to Wallace, but also kind of a fear of him. Because if you watch the the scene we referenced earlier where Wallace is kind of inspecting his new model, mm-hmm. um, she's standing in the background of that, and she's very uncomfortable and does not really take too kindly to, to what's going on with this, you know, right up to the point where he takes the, the scalpel and slices the stomach. And you can see she's not comfortable with that, but at the same time doesn't really... Uh, like she reacts love, uncomfortably, but doesn't do anything about it. Love does not seem happy almost on any time that she's doing Wallace's bidding. When she ki- when she kills Madam, mm-hmm. she's not happy. When like when she watches, when she even when she has to kill Rachel, like it does not like. It, first of all, what a freaking ghoulish scene! But at the same time, like she does it very mechanically, and she's just standing there. We'll oh, when she kills Joy, a little bit, yeah, uh, not not Joy. When, well, when she kills Joy, she—that's the thing. Like you can see that whenever she's either when she kills Joy, when she's besting uh, Kay, it feels like it's more her personal satisfaction mm, that comes I out gotcha. of it. But whenever she's doing something on Wallace's behest, it feels like he's yanking her chain. Yes. Okay. Yeah. That that makes sense. Yeah, no, it, she's a complex character, and I like that because Kay, Kay is somewhat complex, but his complexity is very internalized and doesn't have really a lot of uh, a lot of outside influence to it, other than Joy. Joy, kind of, and really to an extent, that's sort of his own internalized thing that's getting somewhat projected through her. Where she's feeding his this idea that he is the child, the missing child, and all of that, and it's all it's all that kind of stuff inside of him, and it's it's interesting because it's like he he latches onto that idea right away that it's him, and he wants it to be, but he's also afraid of it being. Yeah, but Freya, Freya, Freya like the 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 leader of resistance, like yeah. explains it like we all want to be that child, right? And it makes sense, like mm-hmm. who wouldn't want to be like the messiah for an emerging new species of people yeah got to make him something special something different um especially for a species that is inherently told from their very manufacturing that they're not right that's true um and and so it was interesting to see kind of the other side of that coin which is somebody who has sort of that free will and yet is still being uh controlled and manipulated because really love could could kill Wallace at any point. There's not a whole lot he mm-hmm. could probably do to stop it. Yeah, he might have a safe word. I don't know. Nah. Kill switch or something. But yeah, I mean, a you're right. And, and yeah. the, the thing is, they could have made love into a very one-dimensional. Like, they didn't have to give her that, that amount of depth. But they did. And oh my God, the actress who plays her mm-hmm. nails it. Absolutely. Like, there's so much that is done right with love. First of all, the fact that love is able to beat the crap out of K at certain points. Like, one of the things that's been like kind of like getting in my craw about modern movies is, like, I I I have nothing against the idea of like women being able to beat the crap out of guys. Like, I know it's 
fairly possible. It's completely possible. There's no problem about it. But it's the way it's portrayed in movies is as if they somehow have a singularity giving them weight mm-hmm. that they don't have. Meanwhile, Love's combat, whenever she's fighting Kay, is hyper-realistic. She uses mostly her legs. She never does any move that's unrealistic, like doing a weird, sexy crotch thigh grab or anything. Mm-hmm. Like, it's always very realistic, and her hits land in a realistic way, and I freaking love that. Yeah, and that's... I love to be able to see a character, like a female character, beat the shit out of a dude and not having it look like choreography. I mean, it is, but it feels real. Yeah. Go well. Sorry, I'm not No, and and that's one of the cool things because the replicants obviously they have uh, enhanced strength. Um and that's mm-hmm. both mentioned in the opening crawl and then again short it's made uh, it's made very clear when like the door the door yeah, to the, the door archive sticks. gets yep. stuck, like love just pulls them open. Yeah. So, you know, and that's the kind of filmmaking shorthand that I appreciate uh, where you can just show that and like, okay, I now I know quite a bit about this character already. Like, she's not to be messed with. So, yeah, uh, I, this, this movie was great. You, and, want, you want a little detail about love that adds this interesting question about her personality? Uh, yeah, of course a little I do. Detail because, I mean, we, you, we have a picture. Like, we all see she's always dressed very, very nice, like always mm, to the tit. Like she's she's very well put together, et cetera, et cetera. So if you take the time to carefully look at the scene where the bombardment scene, where after Kay crash lands and all these sort of scavengers are attacking him, mm-hmm. and then there's this horrible bombardment that kind of helps him out, that loves co- coordinating, and she's doing this placidly as she's getting her nails done. Right. If you pay very close attention to her nails as she's getting them done, you'll notice that what she's getting painted on are animated holographic cartoon cows. Really? How what? does that figure in the character <laughs> I ask of you? I'm going to have to think about that because... And by the huh. way, I only noticed this on this viewing my <laughs> probably 50th. Well... It's a then it's very subtle because um, I had no idea. I knew she it was getting her nails done subtle. and whatever was being done was super ornate. But now I'm going to have to go back and, and look at that. Well, that's the thing. Like my first my first viewing was, oh, this is super ornate. My second viewing was, oh, this is holographic and moving. And then on like this viewing, I'm like, I paid close attention. Like these are cartoon cows. <laughs> <laughs> Why does love have cartoon cows on her fancy nails? That is interesting. Um, It's bad because it, again, like, who is this person when she's not having her chain yanked by Wallace? Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. Um, Oh, you know what I didn't mention? And this, I liked this cameo, but I also felt like I wanted a different version of this cameo. And that was Edward James almost as Gaff. So I like bringing him back because it's gaff, even though if you really want to get, you know, uh, technical, I'll push my glasses up on my nose. And actually in the novelization that came out of the sequel to this, uh, gaff dies. Um, cause I think the, the novel opens up with the, the police chief coming back from the funeral or something, but whatever. I, I liked having gaff show up for a, for a moment, but I feel like he should have still been using city speak. That was 
because there were other characters using it and they were subtitling it. And it was such a prominent part of his character in the first movie that I kind of would have liked that as opposed to just it being Edward James almost. I agree with you, but the fact here's the thing: like they were building already a very layered dialogue there mm-hmm. that I, I understand yeah, that's very why true. maybe because he uses the term like retired in a much more we understand kind of way instead of a how Blade Runners retire things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, I guess I I understand why they may have like pulled back from using city speak sure i did like though that the whole time he's just fiddling with something and then you see it and it's a it's an origami sheep and he sets it down on the table that was that was cool Mm -hmm. um yeah i mean if you're gonna bring back gaff for a few seconds you might as well he might as well make something um did you notice the shadow that comes off of the wooden horse in the scene where mariette gets up and it's sitting on the little side table and it's like the the aftermath and she's getting up and putting her clothes back on the light is coming in through the window and it's casting a shadow that looks like a unicorn. Yes, I did notice. Okay. Cuz I, I mean, didn't... you don't you don't go into Blade Runner 2049 <laughs> without looking for unicorns. This is true, but I didn't notice it the first time. I noticed it that second watch, so um, I to be honest, I probably noticed it like on my 4th, 5th, 10th watch. Like <laughs> I, I I know I didn't see it like when I was in theater. Um there's a ton I, I I didn't expect much. Like I, I went in there going, eh, sequel to Blade Runner twenty, Blade Runner, which is which was originally a movie. I saw at like three a.m. half drunk <laughs> when I was a teen. Like I, I did not think much of the original Blade Runner, but That's I fair. saw this one. I went, man, this this movie's just changed my life. Well, and so we talked a little bit about the visuals of this, but a couple of things I really liked was one. Roger Deakins is the director of photography for this. And I just was talking about him last week with Fargo and all his work with the Coen brothers. And this was the movie that finally won him a damn Oscar, uh, which he should have won years and years before that. Cause the man is amazing, but his, his work and working with Villeneuve, uh, it's just, I mean, this movie looks unreal. It's so visually stunning. It is. It is a beautiful movie in so many ways. It's one of those where it's like every frame in this movie could be uh, could be made framed? into a still and framed and put on a wall. Like it's all, every frame is a piece of art. And it's, oh, I love any, any kind of photography people who can, cr- basically they take what is essentially a dystopia and make it beautiful. Mm-hmm. That is, I mean, that's my jam. Like, a lot of what I try to do in horror in general as a writer is try to loop back beauty into horror and horror into beauty. Like the idea of terrible beauty and beautiful terror is mm-hmm. is kind of like where I want to go with my writing. So anybody that can do that visually by taking things that are not meant to be stunning, beautiful, and enthralling and make them that way. Mwah. Oh, yeah. I mean, a barren desert wasteland of Las Vegas and the approach mm. to Las Vegas, and it looked fantastic. Like it was just so. Have you noticed? Like so well one of the things I noticed in this viewing is one of the very first scenes. After you see an eye, and after that, it turns into it fades into just this absolute absolute field of solar farms. Yes. So clearly, they are farming just a massive amount of solar energy. 
then you have a scene with the scene with, with, with Sapper Morton and all the stuff at the farm. And then Case coming back into LA and we are flying around these residential areas and we see almost zero light. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting how they play with light and color in this too, because everything in the city is dark uh, except for like the bright neon. And then mm-hmm. you get outside of the city and everything's just real bleak colors um real lots of oranges and yellows and but muted versions of them not uh, not super bright not not overly saturated yeah. um and, and then I there's feel like every every place has its color palette like las vegas has the orange mm-hmm. ochre yellow palette the, uh, uh the, the san diego DLA. yeah the san diego uh district of la where they were going to the garbage <laughs> dump uh, which I, I mean, right there, that's like a subtle California jab that I'm not aware of. It, that's what I felt. Uh, two things with that one, it had very like rust and Brown kind of color scheme mm-hmm. going on with it. Also, um, this was another fun piece of trivia. So those giant machines that were dumping all the garbage were those are from soldier, right? Yes. They were from soldier and you know why? So, because uh, it's technically part of the same universe. Yeah, the the writer of Blade Runner wrote Soldier, David Webb Peoples, and he claims that, you know, they were they took place in the same universe and that the the character in Soldier was one of the replicants or basically Which makes sense. Yeah. And so the, here's the thing, like, if you want to go a deep dive connecting universes, <laughs> there's a connection between Blade Runner and the Aliens franchise, which mm-hmm. then connects to the Predator franchise. But all of that connects back to Serenity because in one of the shots in Serenity where there, I think if it's, a, it's a turret firing. No, it's a fighter, and it, there's a Wayland yutani logo in yep. there. So all of that is all <laughs> part of the same ginormous multiverse. I love it. Um, I also... I think it's cute. <laughs> I think it's cute. I, I don't want to see like replicants fighting aliens. No. Oh my. No, no, no. Why, but... why am I saying that? We already see it. That's what that's what Ash and that's what Bishop are. Uh, yeah. Moving on. Um, They're just replicants. I, I also really liked the nods to uh, the design and visuals of the original Blade Runner that they brought back in this. Whether it was in costuming, um, mm-hmm. Joy's costume at the casino with Deckard uh, when she's just yeah, wandering the, around the, looking the at stuff. Coat, the, the trans- yeah, the plastic, plastic coat. coat is the same as, uh, what's her name? The, was, uh, the, the, the Zora. Yes, exactly. Um, and uh, even, uh, what's her name? Uh, Mariette is dressed just like Pris. Same fur coat, mm-hmm. same kind of hairstyle, short skirt, all of that. I liked I liked little bits and pieces like that. It was it was nice because it it still it makes it feel like it's the same world, um, and it's easy to not do that, especially something like like Tron and Tron Legacy are similar in that they it was a groundbreaking film of the early '80s, and then a sequel made you know 25, 30 years later, and those two movies are very visually different because of how much technology has changed in the 30 years between them. But they, they managed to, you know, have that same DNA and have that same feel. And they did the same with yeah. this. But Travis, um, Travis, Travis, how many people would you kill to have Disney reskin the original Tron with the new, with Tron legacy graphics? Because I would, I would stand atop a mountain of corpses <laughs> for that. to happen. I would like to see that because who oh boy, would that be pretty cool? 
because man, right. Tron Legacy's visuals are just out of this world. Man, a lot of people will absolutely kick Tron Legacy straight into their it's it's um it's RAM. Um but I love that movie. Anyways, sorry. Yes. Yeah. Let's, let's we can talk about Tron Legacy another time. Like, <laughs> it's also one of my favorite movies, so for no, this, all the wrong reasons. Though. It was it, it was just nice to see that they they really attached to that same visual. Even the the way that Los Angeles looks, the only thing they didn't have were the giant um like exhaust vent fires that the first movie has. Um I didn't Think see those, but that. like they didn't need I them. feel I feel that this movie paints a more optimistic picture of the approach humanity has to env- to the environment. Like it feels like between Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049 there's been a sort of flip because the very first scene they show us is these huge solar farms. Like yeah. they've clearly moved on. Like they're, they're doing what we should be doing right now. Mm-hmm. By the way, way, those solar so, farms are real. That oh, wasn't really? CG. That's uh, somewhere in Spain. Damn. Cause yeah. that is a lot of solar farms. Yeah. Um, no, you're right. And I think maybe some of that would be, I know there were a couple of short films uh, that were made leading up to this that kind of bridged the gaps between or yeah, bridged the gap between the movies. Yeah, there's an animated one that shows how the, the blackout happened. Because yeah. that's, that's a replicant, rebellious thing that happened. Like it's a, it's a quote-unquote terrorism act. Yeah, and the blackout, I think some of that probably played into you know some environmental changes as well as Nyander Wallace with his... Uh, you know, his farming because they talk about the collapse of ecosystems, which again, they sort of hand wave and say, look, this happened, but we're not really going to tell you what happened or how it happened. And what it does is it's already hinted in Blade Runner because when they're talking about like, Oh my God, a real snake, that's impossible. Right. This fake owl is like the, the, the idea that actual real live animals are impossible and rare and expensive already talks about, it already speaks about like the, the collapse of ecosystems. Even wood. I mean, in this movie, when the guy is like, Oh, this is made out of real wood, dude, you're rich. Mm -hmm. You know, I love, and it's, he's got like a couple of ounces of wood. Um, I, I like that. And what what I liked about it, too, is it gives you more questions to ask and more things you want to learn about this world um, and and hopefully more stories maybe that can be set in it, whether they're uh, novelizations or comic books or if they do another movie or who knows what. Uh, but it just it makes the world feel more real and more lived in when you have things like that. It's it's something that I feel that certain un, certain universes like the Star Wars universe is is doing the opposite. Like a lot of the MCU things are doing the opposite, where they're creating a smaller world by not allowing hints of a larger scope. Meanwhile, what they're doing here is the opposite. Like this is an, an important story that's happening in this world, but this world is huge. Like they keep talking mm-hmm. about off world. They yeah. keep talking about these other planets. Like since Wallace started being a big deal, like he's brought humanity to nine new worlds apart from the other world that they had already conquered in, in, in Blade Runner. So they talk about this huge universe, but they're still telling this very localized story. And I like that because it feels so much more lived in. Like it feels more real. That was one of the things I liked about the Firefly universe was, 
it was all centered around this little crew on this little ship and you were getting these little slices of it but the that that world that galaxy whatever it was felt more lived in because you had things like pop culture icons like jane wearing a t-shirt that has a cartoon character on it that isn't you know anything that we would recognize so they have their own pop culture or they had in serenity they had the ad that played for the od bar or whatever it was like it's things like that that set that world apart or set Blade Runner apart from something like a Star Trek or a Star Wars that has this more kind of antiseptic feel to it. Like Star Wars, you know of there's the Empire and then there's there's Star Wars everyone should else. feel huge. It should. If Star Wars like the original trilogy makes it feel bigger because every movie takes you kind of a a bit to a new place, introduces a new character. Like even in Return of Jedi, like they go back to Tatooine, but they show you a side of Tatooine you didn't know about. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, here's the mafia of Tatooine, and here's these whole new characters and whole new species, and all these things you've never seen before. And yet that was a planet that we visited in the first movie. Yeah. And I feel like they're not doing that as much anymore. It's mostly like it, I, I still love what they're doing with Star Wars right now. I still feel like Rebels is like my big thing because they introduced new things. But yeah. the whole idea is like right now it's mostly like, hey, remember this? And like when you have a major cast, that's only like the same 24, 30 people coming back over and over and over again. It makes the universe seem small. Very tiny. And I think that's one of the reasons that I've enjoyed The Mandalorian for the most part, because it's smaller stories, and it's done some of the fan service. It's brought back some characters, but it's done so with a deft hand, and it's done so in a way to try and move forward the story that they're telling while also bringing in new things, whether it's, you know... Uh, I, I don't want to give too they, much away to people. but yeah, like, they, they did the same thing Rebels did, which mm-hmm, Rebels yes. basically said, here's this entirely new planet with this entirely new cast of character. They do a bunch of things that you know about. There's a droid, there's a Jedi, a lot of familiar things, but all in this new package. Mm-hmm. And once you love this, once you're attached to that, then we start bringing in the nostalgia. And that's what Mandalorian's doing. Like, Here's a Mandalorian. You've heard about Mandalorian. You know what it is. And a baby Yoda. You know what a Yoda is, right? Yeah. So, like, here's all these things you know about, but in this new package, and now that we have this first season done, here's the second season, and we're pulling in the nostalgia. Like, they're basically doing the same thing, and I can, like, I am 100% behind them doing this kind of thing. But that's Star Wars. We'll talk about this on another <laughs> show if you invite me. I will say this, though. Uh Icarus in the chat saying, can please, can someone please tell me what's so wrong with fan service? I don't have a problem with fan service. I shouldn't have uh, said it in kind of a pejorative way. I think gratuitous fan service or overdone clumsy fan service, fan clumsy service. fan service is bad, yeah. but like fan service on its, on its head, give people what they want. They want to see this thing. Go ahead and give it to them, but give make it work for what you're doing. Don't just shoehorn it in because it's fan service. And that's something that I think Mandalorian and Dave Filoni does a very good job of doing exactly that, where it's not clumsy feeling. George Lucas, I feel like, just put stuff in there because he's like, well, wouldn't this be kind of cool? And we'll, we'll just do this. And it felt clumsy. So. I like George Lucas. I mean, he had some cool toys he wanted to play with. I, I yeah. feel this mostly J.J. Abrams that I've, I, I well, mean, I, and too. I love a lot of the stuff he's done. 
And you know what? This is a completely different discussion. <laughs> I want to go back to 2049. No, it is. You're right. We still have two major characters that we haven't touched on and we need to freaking talk about. All right. Well, go ahead and kick that off with uh, with one of them. Well, first of all, I want to go back to one little detail. This is just this is complete aside. This is a capsule independent from the rest of our conversation. But have you noticed that the the heavy use of Russian in this movie, a movie that was released in 2017? Yeah, well, and it was interesting <laughs> so because good. I mentioned City Speak and there was mm-hmm. a lot of that, whether it was uh, people speaking Hungarian, um, people speaking uh, the one prostitute girl that comes up to K speaks Finnish um, mm-hmm. when she calls him a blade runner. So yeah, but I did notice there was some Russian. I think a lot of the, the stuff on um, Sapper Morton's farm was all in Russian, wasn't it? Yeah. A lot of the, like the, there's a lot of Cyrillic painted on, on walls mm-hmm. here and there. The very first foreign language we hear is Russian on the radio when K's flying in. Yes. And that's what it was. It's, I, I, you know, I don't think it's a deliberate choice. I just think no. it's very ironic that in 2017, <laughs> that's what that's the language that we see um, the most used after English in the United yeah. States. <laughs> that's pretty good. Well, uh, well, well done, Dennis. De- Dennis, Denny. Bravo. I don't. De- Denis. Denis. Denis Villeneuve. Yeah. You I, I know I'm going to pronounce it wrong. Again. That's just what I do. I am. Look. look. Denny and I come from the same province, essentially, and the fact that for some reason, and this is so typical of Quebec, how we feel this weird level of shame as anybody that finds successes in Quebec culture is sort of viewed as dreaming beyond his means, and I hate that. (laughs) Like yeah. we, it's it's so weird. Like Denis Villeneuve is an amazing, freaking artistic genius. Every like most people will agree to that. And yet, how how are we not here in Quebec just nonstop talking about him? Is bizarre. Well, okay. So l- listen to these four. I'm going to give you five movie titles: mm-hmm. uh, Enemy, Sicario, Arrival. Blade Runner 2049 and Dune. Now Dune hasn't come out yet, but that's that's five movies in a row from him. That's incredible. Like that is really impressive uh run of movies there. Oh, the the dude like I've one of the things I've said very, very early on in my writing career is like when when um when Life Engineered was first published, that's a book I wrote. It's science fiction and it's robots. But when Life Engineer got published. One of the first things, one of the first thoughts I was, and I'm not the kind of guy who thinks about like, oh, who would I cast for which character? Like, I had two thoughts about this book. I wanted, like, if ever it got made into a movie, I wanted the soundtrack to be made in a collaboration between Glitch Mob and Lindsay Sterling. And okay. I wanted Denis Villeneuve to direct it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Because, the, damn it, he's very good at it he really he is, is like he is the kind of he is the kind of director that will pull subtext out of things that makes a movie or whatever project he's working on so much deeper mm-hmm. that's why i'm so excited to watch his take on dune i cannot wait for that i don't care that it's been pushed back uh it just it looks amazing his visual style is going to work so well with it and exactly that. The now that I've seen yet another movie of his, I get this feeling that he's going to be able to pull a lot of that stuff that Herbert wrote into Dune and and really put it in there. 
And also, and I, I, I really I quickly, I have to, I have to talk down because there's some Paps Blue Ribbon slander going on in the chat right now. And <laughs> listen, right. Paps Blue Ribbon, there's nothing wrong with that. That is a fine lawn mowing beer. Okay. Anyway, back to the discussion. I've, I've never heard a more adroit description of <laughs> beer. It is a fine lawn mowing beer. There you go. <laughs> Um, no, I, I love that because you're not trying to elevate it to anything more than what it is, but you're giving it the credit it's due. Mm-hmm. And I agree. Phelan, 100% agreement. I also think all beers are yucky. <laughs> I have a friend who's tried to make me like beer. I cannot. Like, there's something about beer itself that I don't like. I am very jealous. Here in Quebec, beer is essentially the second most easily accessible thing after water. <laughs> So not not liking beer is a tremendous de- detriment to my lifestyle. But yeah. I understand. So let's talk about um, Deckard. Yeah. So <laughs> we have we we kind of have to, don't we? So Harrison Ford. So this was the third um, character that Harrison Ford revisited from past movies because he did an Indiana Jones four, mm-hmm. not good. Um, he came back as Han Solo. In uh, in episode seven, and he, I didn't dislike his Han Solo, but he also was partially mailing that in. But it was a character he didn't really care to go back to. No, I mean, like the 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 ad copy for this should have been like Har- like Harrison Ford is Harrison Ford as Han Solo. Like he plays, like he plays a grumpy version of Harrison Ford that just happens to be wearing Han Solo clothes. Yeah. Well, I mean that's who he is now, but this this one, Which I guess fine. From what I read, he was involved in the project before uh Villeneuve was. He was mm. he was already on board with uh coming back as as Deckard. And he's great. I wish I had known going into it that he didn't show up in the movie until an hour and 45 minutes in because no, I, I kept waiting. That. But but I that's was... only because I want more of him on screen. I just I'm selfish I that way. No, I am like as much as I'm a huge fan of Harrison Ford's work when he was younger. Like anything past the Fugitive is is just bored. Harrison Ford, like with a gun to his head, wishing he could be piloting World War II planes instead of doing whatever he's doing. Um, like it feels. Yeah. It, I, I don't feel like he's being unprofessional. I just feel like he feels like he seems obligated to be there. But for this role, I'm I, I don't like here's the thing. I don't see Harrison Ford. No, I see an old everything Rick else, Deckard. Yeah, I see an old Rick Deckard. Meanwhile, anything else like Han Solo, I see Harrison Ford wearing a Han Solo mask <laughs> and just absolutely freaking indulging everybody wearing makeup and weird alien costumes, just going, Ugh Fine. Alright, fine, but you're gonna pay one, me, I'll like, do I, it. Like, I I would much rather be crashing World War II Spitfires onto golf courses than doing this. <laughs> I just I just want to get high and fly planes. All right, leave me alone. Exactly. That's and I'm listen. Hey, I, he's I'm it. always <laughs> weirded out when actors who have hundreds of millions of dollars to their name are still freaking acting. Like and like if they like it, I get it. Like if you're the Rock, you clearly seem to be enjoying the acting process. So. Sh- it man absolutely mm-hmm. but if you're just acting sitting on like 
20 million dollars and you're still acting and you clearly hate every minute of it no just pull a sean connery and retire it's fine yeah There's plenty of people take your place you're not go, unique it's good go that route don't go the bruce willis route because oh, bruce willis you when... managed to pull out the absolute <laughs> perfect example of that kind of asshole actor because here's the thing like even when harrison ford is phoning it in a little bit and he's doing he's coming back and he's, he's doing indiana jones he's at least effort yeah he's putting in some effort and he's enjoyable to watch on screen i'll tell you what i like bruce willis in a in a role that he enjoys being in if you go back and you watch him in early die hard or you watch him in even death becomes her or something like that when he wants to be there, he's great, but there's so much, so often where he doesn't want to be there, and it's awful, and and I hate that. I, I just I just don't like that. Like it's one I will never begrudge an actor for taking money for a role. I've I've said that many many times oh, over. But I mean, if you it, don't it depends, want to like, be there, just don't be there. You can find something exactly. else to do. No, absolutely. And the thing is, like, Bruce Willis, especially in recent, like, in, since Die Hard 3, I guess, whatever, like, it feels like every time a scene ends, you can almost hear the director say, cut, and Bruce Willis chew out someone. Like, just yell at someone random. And, like, this is how the scene ends. Like, you miss the yeah. entire next actual scene in the movie because you're imagining Bruce Willis being an asshole to a grip or a gaffer or whatever. Well, if you if you ever want to hear a story about that, um, listen to Kevin Smith. <laughs> listen to Kevin Smith talk about making cop out with Bruce Willis. I because, have heard Kevin Smith. Oh, and like, it's heartbreaking for him I to will, get to work with this actor who he had idolized and he he loved his work, and then he finally gets a chance to work with him, and he said it was just soul crushing. Like, like it made him want to quit doing making movies, and yeah, it and almost did. Like he stopped making movies for such a long time because of that. So yeah, no, no. I've, yeah. I've listened. I've listened to Smodcast. I've heard that story <laughs> at five times. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not made a straw. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's yeah. just, and it's Kevin Smith, like probably one of the nicest people involved in filmmaking. He is. Absolutely like, lovable. So. Like I, here's the thing. Like I will, like, I will watch a Kevin Smith movie that I know I won't like, like Clerks Two. <laughs> the same way I will watch a, same way you watch your kids like talent show. Like like, it's it's not going to be good, but it's my kid. Like, yeah, it's the same so, thing. Like oh, Clerks Two. It's not going to be good, but it's Kevin Smith. Right. I'm gonna I'm gonna laugh at some of the jokes and and whatever. It's fine. Yeah, um, I'm gonna like, kind of like ugh, feel bad about like some of the other choices, but it's fine. Like, yeah. oh, it's Kevin Smith. Just want to, you go, buddy. Yeah. You lost a lot of weight. I'm proud of you. But uh, um, so but, getting getting back to Deckard. So 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 Deckard. Um, Harrison Ford is Deckard. I I genuinely liked his performance as he, as old man Deckard. He brought he a heaviness. Yes, that's. I think that's the thing. He actually was acting. Like, and it, it feels, here's the thing, right? I feel there are certain acting decisions, very subtle things. Like, when he's chasing Kay around the casino in the showroom, the way he holds his gun, mm -hmm. I feel that if Harrison Ford had been Harrison Fording it, he would have tried to hold it like a badass. Yeah. But he's playing 30 years later Deckard Kane. Deckard Kane? <laughs> no. Rick Deckard. Yeah, there yeah. we go. 
sorry, I'm on. I'm two whiskeys in. Sorry, <laughs> it happens. So he he's playing Deckard thirty years later, and he's holding, but he's holding his gun like an old man. But it feels, it doesn't feel like it's just Harrison Ford pointing it in. He's nope. It's, it feels like it's a conscious acting decision, and it's perfect. It's yeah. good. And again, like let's go back, let's move in forward a little bit. The, I feel that his acting comes out more specifically in his use of facial expressions. Mm -hmm. His presence, like the the entire scene where he's in Wallace's like custody, if you will, Mm -hmm. that ghoulish scene where they bring out like this, this clone of Rachel, fake Rachel, the fake Rachel, which by the way, here's a a small aside. All right. Uh, We'll talk about Anastelline very soon, but Mm -hmm. so, okay. (laughs) We'll get back to Decker. There's not much to talk about Decker anymore. He did a good job. Like mm-hmm. Ford did a good job. Let's move on to Anastelline and let's introduce her with this weird little fa- thing that I noticed in this particular viewing. So Anas- Dr. Anastelline is a memory expert. She creates memories for replicants. That yeah. And one of her main clients is Wallace Corporation because she is one of the best at what she does. Yeah. Wallace even offered to buy her out, but like she says, I take my freedom where I can. So she refused. So at some point, Wallace says, I am going to get Deckard. So I'm going to build a copy. Like I'm going to essentially make a 1998 MacBook. Yeah. Out of like whatever what we what, what however we can like we're gonna do a replica of this old version of this artificial construct so that we can like sort of get in touch with uh, with Decker's nostalgia and love for that particular model of replicants. Yeah. So how weird is it that it is almost one hundred percent probable that when he was doing this. Oh, he at least, at least asked Doctor Staline to create her memories. I had not thought of that, but she's the best yeah. at what she does, and he needs the best Ray version of Rachel. So there is a non-zero chance that Wallace <laughs> called up Doctor Staline and says, "Hey." Can you make memories for this very specific contract? It's a custom project, so I need it very like money's no object, but I need you to create this. And basically, oh. I want you to make the memories for your mom, which you never right. knew. It is yeah. oh. so twisted, and it makes like rewatch that scene with the scene between Deckard and Rachel, which is already incredibly ghoulish. The fact that Wallace has her freaking skull on his lap, brings out the new replicant, tries to have her charm and sort of almost emotionally blackmail Deckard, and always in the background of your brain, always playing his background noise, you have the idea that, yeah, he might have tried to, and maybe even successfully contracted Rachel's daughter to create the memories for that replicant i had not immediately gets shot in the head yeah and that like harsh movie not only is the whole scene ghoulish and then that's the outcome of it when she doesn't Mm -hmm. do what he wants it's just (laughs) in the head right there oh which highlights that as much as he keeps talking about 
replicants as angels, he still sees them as extremely disposable. Yes. And that is in like in storytelling terms, the way all of that is highlighted and painted onto the canvas of film is beautiful. Mm -hmm. It really, really is. This is the kind of thing that makes Villeneuve kind of a genius. And in a way, like if you want to like go into like one of the visual storytelling things that I only only picked up at the this time, and I I feel like I'm stupid. Like I'm not I'm not a film student, so obviously I didn't I don't pick up on certain very clear things. But at the very end, Anastaline is she's standing under holographic snow in her memory creating chamber. Mm-hmm. She's not working on any specific memory. She seems to be just enjoying it to enjoy it. And it, it's sort of a mirror of the snow that's falling outside. It's falling onto Kay as he's dying. Yeah. Sorry, Joe at this point as he's dying. So it's, it's like kind of a, a rhyming poetic thing going on. But when you think about the fact that Anastaline is like she's immunocompromised, she cannot leave the room that she's in, or if she does, like I'm assuming there's a whole process. And And when you look at it, Knowing that she is probably amongst all the characters, all the elements in this movie, the only thing that is beautiful and pure, she's essentially in a snow globe. Yeah. And that's the kind of visual storytelling that Villeneuve does is just like, so good. Now, here's a question for you, though. Do you think she actually is immunocompromised or that was the story that was told to her enough as a child to keep her there so that she would be safe because I've Deckard on that. Yeah. Because Deckard mentions, you know, he taught them how to, how to erase the tracks, how to, how to mess everything up to keep her safe. It's entirely possible. And, and I like that because it's sort of the whole is Deckard a replicant? Yes or no type of thing from the first movie where, it's ambiguous enough that you don't know. It's entirely possible that she does have that based on the fact that she's one of a kind. She's a born replicant. Here's, but here's it's also, where I come here's where I come off with it. Sure. Um, so I've waffled back and forth on that particular question for ever since I seen the first movie. And I've landed on the fact for <laughs> boring scientific reasons that if she is this weird mutant, like she is the first offspring of an artificial being and a human being, that she would have a genetic condition that means that she's immunocompromised is probably very logical. So that. Also, the thing is, thematically, it very much fits because it puts her in this situation that is, is very tragic. And everything, every character in Blade Runner has to deal with tragedy. So having her not necessarily be immunocompromised, not being in that situation would remove that from her. And I feel that would pull her out of the the tone of this Blade Runner story. But I don't know because so at the same time, I think that it still would be tragic for her because she's stuck in this place. She can't leave. <sighs> Believes yeah, until that, Deckard says, no, you're not really immunocompromised. Well, you can but leave here's the thing, though. He was leave. gone by the time any of that came about, so he <gasps> he might not actually know, I think, is kind of where, I, I'm, I, where I'm coming down on it. I mean, 
and I, I feel that there's also another tragedy in the thing that if she is, if she is immunocompromised, that means like she can't like be the Eve to a new race of replicant. Yeah, that's what makes point. it very difficult. And, and that's like this added tragedy to the whole revolution thing. Yeah. Because okay. that's the thing, like we, we, we went into a lot of detail, but let's bring it back to one of broader themes. So the whole idea is that in, in this whole story is about how you have this group like Deckard and, and, and Rachel, uh, Sapper Morton, Martin, like all these people want to both protect this child, but also they want they're, they're looking forward to this idea that she's going to usher in this new era for replicants. Then you have Wallace who is trying to usher in a new uh, era for replicants as a more plentiful source of slavery. Yeah. And finally, you have Madam's side, which is, no, we need to keep this wall up and make sure that the difference between humans and replicants is never forgotten because otherwise, as she puts it, it breaks the world. Yeah. But the end story, the decision that Kay makes is one that is so important because like the whole question of, of Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049 is always, it's always a question of what is humanity mm -hmm. and Kay answers that question in the most beautifully subtle way. And to him, humanity is being able to reunite a father and her ch and his child. Yeah. It is more important than the revolution. It's more important than Wallace. It's more important than his very existence. The idea that it is like what makes us human, what makes us more human than human is being able to reconnect, like bring back this human connection between a human and his half replicant child, I guess. Yeah, no, that's, and that's yeah, I like that. I, and you're right. That is, that is a great theme and it's a great execution of that kind of stuff because again, it's done very subtly. So yeah. You know what? And that's a great spot to end on too, because I think that that really brings everything back to just a nice, uh, a nice spot. This movie was fantastic. If you haven't seen it yet, do yourself a favor and seek it out. Watch it. You're, you're going to be, you're going to be sitting down for a little while, but it's, it's hundred percent worth it. I'm glad that somehow in our conversations over the, the last few weeks, this movie came up because I'm really glad to have gotten to see it and then talk about it. This has been a great conversation. Um, oh, and I could go on. Like, I mean, unfortunately, I've just gone through like uh, a lot of alcohol and water <laughs> and drinks, so I need to go to washroom at some point. Um, so I, probably, you're right. This is a good point to end yeah. both biologically and thematically. Yes, um, which is good because this is a movie about biologic, like bio biology and thematics. So. Um, but like if, if ever you want to get into it, even like if you want to talk about this, this dumb longer, like I am super into it like this. Oh, I'd be into that. I saw this movie and it immediately jumped to the top of my favorite movies of all time. It is. Yeah. It's beautiful. Really, it's really good. I, I, it's hard for me to say yet it's hit that mark, but it's definitely one that is going no, to I, merit rewatching. I don't demand that people agree no. with me. I'm yeah. just saying that it 
hits a lot of the things that I love about the the sort sort, sort of the the abstractions. Like I love to talk about human themes, and mm-hmm. this movie just does that all over the place. It is yeah. unapologetically human for a movie that talks about humans, replicants, and holograms, and how they all interact. And I love that. Yeah, and the thing that I really enjoyed about it was. I had such a different experience watching it the second time today as I did last night, and both of them were very positive. So it's great because that tells me I've got a lot of rewatchability and a lot of layers I can pick apart in this uh, the more times that I see it. So I, I, I can't recommend it enough. It's a great movie. Excellent choice, and thank you for bringing it to me. Um, and- thank you for finally giving me the opportunity <laughs> to nerd out like a goddamn weirdo about this movie absolutely i have been wanting to for a while no i want to thank you for coming on for agreeing to come on and and talk about it with me because this has been great i have i've enjoyed this we'll have to do uh we'll do this again both offline just talking about this movie and we'll we'll have to talk about something else at some point too because uh this has been fun it's great oh, to, to see and hear your insights and hear your the way that you look at it from a different perspective than i do um, and that's that makes for really fun conversation. So thank you very well, I think much. This, this the whole theme of your of your podcast is having someone who knows a movie and someone who's got a fresh perspective, and mm-hmm. having these two kind of like bang together, and uh, and to, to to get some great conversation. Like I'm I'm enjoying it. Absolutely. Well, so let people know where they can find stuff you're working on because I know you're an author. You oh, write. You write some great <laughs> stuff. So, um, like the the easy path to the stuff I work for work on is to go to my website jfdubo.com. That's j f d u b e a u dot com. I need to update that, but you'll you'll find like most of my books. Um, I've written a horror and a science fiction book, but. If you want some more current stuff that I'm working on, you can check out Aquillo at Aquillo.com or on Twitter at Aquillo. It's a uh, storytelling podcast that I write for that is narrated by the extremely talented, wickedly talented Amy Frost. Mm-hmm. And it is basically, it's a, it's a story of a, um, a, a Montreal-born uh, young lady who discovers that her family... Uh, well, her, her great-grand-aunt used to be the kitchen witch in the little town of Aquilo that sits on the border between the USA and Canada. It's a story about demons, coffee, cooking, and witchcraft. And I love writing it, and I hope you'll enjoy listening to it. And I take it from me, you will enjoy listening to it. I love the show. So that's it's, Amy, Amy it's amazing. Amy does such a kick-ass job. Like, as a narrator, oof. Very she much. is slumming it by working with me. <laughs> Uh, I don't want to say one way or the me. other. I don't want to say one way or the other because you're both you're, you're both just wicked good at what you do. So that's awesome. Ake Willow, definitely check it out. Uh, season three has begun. Yes? Yes. Season yes. three where uh, episode five of season three came out in that last Thursday. Thursdays are Ake Willow day when seasons are on. And usually like between seasons or in the middle of seasons, we're trying to like drop in some uh, some specials, make sure that there's there's always like between seasons, there's no content, but we're, we're trying to like sort of fix that. Okay, excellent. Well, this show uh, comes out Wednesdays uh, as a podcast. We record, uh, I record it on Sundays. So if you want to catch the live stream and be like Dice Tomato, Phelan, uh, Ace, um, we had Icarus in here. Phil Rudd shows up every once in a while and, and, and yell at me while I'm trying to talk about a movie. Uh, you can do that at twitch.tv slash TV's Travis. Sunday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern time. We record Wait You Haven't Seen. So, um, 
yeah, this has been a ton of fun. We're going to have to do this again. Absolutely. I loved it. uh, Until then, until the next time, just remember to to get out and enjoy your movies. um, Because, I mean, you know, or stay in. No, don't get out. Stay Stay home and listen to and enjoy your movies. Yes. Drink. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> <laughs>